Hi, and welcome to the Hingham Cast. I'm your host, Allie Donnelly. The Hingham Cast is hyper-local, looking at the pandemic, politics, and everything in between through the lens of one small town. My town, here on Boston South Shore. But the issues we explore are universal, like what's happening to our workforce. I've been reading about and experiencing staff shortages, but I was thinking about the issue mostly for restaurants and retail, until I saw a post from Beth McDade on the Hingham Hub Facebook page. She was looking for someone to help with her gentle giant, her 22-year-old son, Cormac. What's today? Wednesday. What are you going to do today? Chores. Art. Walk in swim pools. Cormac is six foot two, a grinning teddy bear who engages easily. He loves dinosaurs and computers and volunteers at Harbor Media. He was diagnosed with autism at 13 months old. For people who are listening to the podcast and they want to know about you, what would you want them to know? About animals and stuff. Yeah, but what would you want them to know about you? What would you say? I'm a man. A man who wants to go to college? I'm the man... Who wants to go to college? When people living with disabilities in Massachusetts turn 22, they transition into adulthood and out of free public schooling. It's a moment his mom, Beth, has been preparing for for years. The plan was always that Cormac would graduate Hingham High and then transition into a day program with a South Shore nonprofit. But COVID hit, and Cormac aged out of the system in a pandemic. Beth, an artist and aide to senior citizens, scrambled to create a schedule for him at home for as long as she could. But after six or seven months, Cormac is getting bored. He's getting bored with me. He's getting bored with the schedule. I think he's getting bored with being at home. He wants, he keeps telling me he wants to go to college. And I can tell he wants to do more and be with people and be more interactive And I just can't give it to him. Now I'm just treading water trying to figure out what I can do for him. Treading water because Cormac is now 22 and she needs to find him a day program so she and her husband can work. But the pandemic has hit nonprofits hard and they've been forced to turn vulnerable clients away. For a variety of reasons we'll dig into, people working in human services have left or been pushed out of the field in droves. That means there isn't enough staff to go back to pre-pandemic full capacity. And I was told right up front from the two programs I had chosen that it was going to be a difficult road back. I'm visiting the McDades one recent afternoon, sitting at their kitchen table. Their friend Kim Cross has come over too. Her daughter Jenna has Down syndrome and will soon age out of the system as well. She worries she'll have the same problems. It gives me concern because you want your child to be able to have as fulfilling and rewarding life as possible. And the fact that those opportunities aren't there right now is of concern. Beth was told by her top choices they likely wouldn't be able to get Cormac in for another year. It's grueling. It's really grueling. She went to the state for help and says they tried to get her a professional aide to come to the house, but no luck. They put the ad out. They couldn't find anybody. Nobody responded to the ad. That's why they asked me if my oldest boy would want to help out, and they would pay him. Cormac's brother Liam is helping out, but the state only pays for 15 hours a week, and it's not enough. Beth says she has been able to find a few programs with openings, but they're not a good fit for Cormac. Some of these programs are just, you know, for low-functioning kids. They're not for the kids like Jenner and Cormac 
who fall in that middle category. They're not low-functioning, but they're not high-functioning. They're in that middle category. They want to do something. They want to be somebody, and they just don't know how. Ham and cheese. What makes it your favorite? Because it's my favorite. So tell me the steps that you did to, to get it there. Put on salami, put on ham, and put on cheese. Excellent. Put now on yogurt, put on apple, put on banana, and put on this. All on top of your ham sandwich. Yeah. People are saying to me, well, just put him in that program. At least you have him somewhere. And then when these programs open up, switch him up. And that sounds easy, that sounds great, but if I put him into a program right now that I didn't want him in, but they have an opening, I would lose his place in the launch program and at the friendship home. They would take him off the list and he would have to start over. What do you worry about? I worry about the fact that I'm losing a complete year on giving him a chance to be all that he can be. And I'm losing that year. And frankly, I'm an artist. I'm not a special ed director. I, I never took courses. I'm not a teacher. He wants it so bad right now, and I just can't give it to him. And I think that kills me. It kills me, because I just don't know what I'm going to do with him. That's my biggest fear, is dying and not having him taken care of. Although I know Liam will be there for him. But it's scary. It's scary. It's hard enough being a parent of typical kids and making sure they grow up without too many problems. But then to have a special needs kid, it's just a whole different ball of wax. It really is. It's scary. And I'll tell you, it's a slap in the face when, and it's more a slap in the face to him than to me. Let's take a break here. If you like the podcast, follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And feel free to write a review. And please, please share us with a friend. We need your support for community journalism. Let me introduce my next guests. Michael Weeks is head of the Providers Council, a trade organization that advocates for and addresses human service issues. Michael, welcome. Paul, thank you. I also want to welcome Chris White. He's the head of the Marshfield nonprofit Road to Responsibility. RTR supports adults with disabilities in a variety of settings, day programs, residential services, and social services. Hi, Chris. Hi, Ellie. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. So I want to start with you. Describe, if you would, the clients you have and the role RTR staff play in their lives. Wow. Well, Road to Responsibility serves a wide spectrum of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including folks with autism spectrum disorders and acquired brain injuries. Okay. And the second part of that question was, what role does your staff play in their lives? Our staff, for many of the people we support, if not the most important people in their lives, pretty darn close Hmm. because they're with them, uh, in some cases, 24 hours a day. So how has this pandemic-tied staffing shortage affected you? Oh, it's impacted us in uh, multiple ways, uh, but most importantly, it's it's impacted families and uh, the people we support. First off, it's been extremely difficult, as you're probably aware, Allie, 
day programs in Massachusetts shut down for in-person services for months last year at the start of the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And reopening uh, has proven to be extremely difficult, primarily because of the staffing crisis. Right now, we're only serving about half the uh, people that uh, we had been serving in our day services prior to COVID. And that's because you don't have enough staff? Correct. Give me the numbers. In our entire system, uh, we have about 835 staff positions. Of that 835, we have over 200 vacant positions right now. That's right about a quarter of your staff. Yep. Why? What's happened to them? A whole lot of things. Uh, First, you know, our sector is uh, heavily dependent on women. About 80% of my staff are women. And, uh, you know, for all the progress that's been made over uh, the decades around, you know, childcare and uh, equality, moms still tend to do the uh, majority of the uh, child rearing. And so, mm-hmm. as you're probably also aware, a lot of daycare centers went out of business during the pandemic, and those that are left don't have the capacity to serve all the kids. And there mm-hmm. were also school, you know, schools were in flux all of last year. And so many of our employees with uh, children simply weren't able to come in because they had to look after their kids. Mm. So the 200 staffers down, you've only been able to bring back 50% of your clients in the day programs. How does that play out for the families you serve? It means that um, a burden has been shifted Uh, And that's an awful way of putting it, because I know these families don't view their uh, adult children um, with disabilities as burdens, but Mm -hmm. it adds responsibilities to the families that um, that they haven't needed to shoulder for, uh, in some cases, a long time. And for families of people turning 22 who are looking to get into adult services for the first time, for many of them, it means waiting indefinitely. And that's a tragedy. You know, we're hearing about that tragedy firsthand from um, Beth and Kim and, and Cormac. I also want to ask you about how does it affect the staffers you do have and how you're spending your money, how, you know, your funding? Well, in terms of how it's impacting our existing staff is, you know, as I said, it's increased their stress levels considerably. And uh, and frankly, we've seen an increase in burnout. Uh, we've lost many of them because they they just got burned out on the constant pressure of trying to provide, you know, 24-hour care uh, for individuals during a pandemic. And what does it do to your budget to, you know, for these folks? Budgetarily, it's it's brutal. It has significantly ratcheted up our overtime expenditures, and uh, and we're spending ridiculous amounts of money on uh, temporary relief staffing agencies. So money that you might have put into services or you know things that could make the lives of people with disabilities and their families better 
you're now spending on hard cost of temps and overtime. Exactly. Just trying to keep, keep things going for as many people as we can. I want to pause you there and bring in Michael Weeks. Uh, Michael, is RTR's situation unique among providers? Unfortunately, Ali, it is not unique. In fact, um, RTR situation is as bad and perhaps uh, not as bad in some cases, but um, the situation amongst our provider community is pretty dire. And I think, you know, um, when we looked at a survey that was done by one of our um, colleagues, they saw vacancy rates at about um, averaging 38 at 36% for certain populations. So what um, Chris's experience is, is right in line um, and perhaps maybe a shade better than others. And, and that's, that's really sad to, to, to hear that um, because it does affect not only the people who can't access services, but those employees who remain are now picking up additional responsibilities um, and are working at uh, breakneck speeds to try to keep up the demand, which unfortunately is just going to be too much for them to be able to manage for a long period of time. Yeah. You know, COVID on so many fronts has been kind of the great exacerbator. Human services already faced a staffing shortage. So what did COVID do? Well, that's an excellent point, um, Ali. Prior to COVID coming, we were already entering um, a crisis or a situation with our workforce. Um, We were growing at a phenomenal rate. In fact, from the period of 2006 to 2016, the number of human service positions has grown by 65%. That's an enormous increase, and that's because the need is there. Mm. And at the same time, we were in, in a state in which the working age population was decreasing. So as the working age population is decreasing, the demand for workers increased. It's a conundrum that um, just laid the groundwork for an even bigger challenge when COVID hit. So what, like, as we face it now, what's the problem? Obviously, uh, we need to get the COVID situation resolved um, in a way that people can safely come back to work. Mm -hmm. Second thing is we've got to have more people in our workforce. And for those who are in our workforce, particularly in the human services sector, we have to be able to retain them. You know, one of the things that Chris talked about was the fact that people are burning out because of the additional responsibilities. And I would add that not only is traditional responsibilities, but the pay that they receive is not kept up with the pay of others in our in our Massachusetts economy, which, as you know, um, is an economy in which um, it's really important that we attract and maintain um, and retain the best and the brightest in order to service our uh, folks who need it. Yeah. Paint me a picture of that. What's the average pay scale? Or can you give me a sense of pay scale and how that lines up with other things? Sure. Well, let me try this. Here's one way of looking at it. We had the University of Massachusetts Donahue Institute and the University of Massachusetts uh, Dartmouth Public Policy did a few studies for us at the Providers Council. And one of the things we wanted to know is where do we line up in terms of our median wage scales? And so they looked at all human service workers in Massachusetts and all workers in Massachusetts and did a comparison. Mm. 
And what they found that the median wage for human service workers in Massachusetts was about 27,000. And you compare that with the median wage for all workers, which was 40,500. So you right there got a delta of 13,500. That's a huge, significant difference. Our advocacy groups, our providers have been doing all they can to pour more money into salaries as much as they possibly can, but they can do for so much because they're under contracts with the state and those contracts are not elastic to the Mm. point where people can, you know, raise their prices with the state uh, like others can do. So for example, you can go to a local store and perhaps your local donut shop or your local supermarket can change prices and say, hey, we're gonna raise wages two, three dollars an hour. We're not able to do that with contracts, at least last for two years. Meaning that the state Department of Development Services and or the state sets the rate at which the providers get reimbursed for the services and it's a set rate that is negotiated. So it's not like we could say, just like your store example, okay, avocados are becoming more expensive, but we also want to pay our workers more. So we're going to charge you X for avocados now to make up the difference. The providers can't do that. Exactly. They're in contracts that are at least two years um, in making. And though we've tried and continue to do that. And in fact, we are talking with the state and the legislature right now about using some of the ARPA funds in order to Mm. supplement some of the salaries that are being provided. Yes. Yeah. So ARPA funds for for folks who don't know is the is the federal money that's coming in. I think Massachusetts is somewhere in the ballpark of about sixty million dollars in this in this latest round, and they have to decide how to spend it, when to spend it, what to do with it. Sure. We think the important thing to do is to take care of Massachusetts um, workers who are providing some essential duties here in Massachusetts and doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, Chris, I want to bring you back in for a moment. Give me your pay scale. And, you know, what people have said about that, what your, you know, staffers. Well, uh, someone coming to us with no experience and uh, and no significant educational background, uh, they'd be coming in, starting it with direct care work at $15 an hour. So $15 an hour, I mean, they could work at Target or McDonald's or get the same, if not more. Exactly. That do- it does not cut it. Uh, whatsoever, especially as we're seeing uh, inflation, it's becoming uh, more of a burden every day. And so, as Michael alluded to, and we're looking at uh, any way we can to try to increase the pay for our staff, including using some one-time money in, in the hopes that our state contracts will eventually catch up. So there's money available. It's just Will it be prioritized? Well, I think you hit it right on the nose, Ali. There is money that's there. We get that to make sure that the priorities are in the right place. And it is our uh, belief that uh, we ought to be directing money to take care of people who are taking care of our most vulnerable. So we're talking about you know our elderly residents, uh, people with disabilities, those who are uh, have challenges in mental health, substance addictions, um, there's a whole range of people that are being served by the Commonwealth. But we ought to be directing money to take care of them and to take care of them better. They deserve it, and we have the the skills in order to provide that service. But we need to have the workforce, and 
I can't think of a better use of money right now than to help us to take care of those who need help in taking care of themselves. Let's take a quick break here to thank our media partners at the Hingham Anchor. All news is local. For more news on our community and to see some great pictures of Cormac and Jenna and the faces and families behind these very real struggles for care, head to HinghamAnchor.com. Okay, let's get back to the conversation and hear about ways you can help. Chris, you interact with families every day. You interact with clients every day. If you had the legislature and Governor Baker right in front of you, what would you say? I'd say we need more help and because there are people who are suffering out there who desperately need uh, to either begin services or return to services that have been helping them in some cases for many years and that which they rely upon for accessing the community in a safe way, for having jobs and, and having stability in their lives. If this isn't addressed and this crisis continues, what will the picture be for people coming into services, so to speak, all of the people with disabilities that turn 22 and and need these programs? Well, Allie, I had a phone conversation uh, this morning with a family who uh, was desperate. Their uh, son uh, had just turned 22. They've gotten funding from the state for uh, day services, but they've been told that the soonest their son will be able to uh, be served will be a year. Mm. And the parents aren't able to work as much because one of them has to be home with him. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very familiar story. It's, a, it's the story that Beth uh, told us earlier. And that's a point that I think uh, people don't really understand as fully enough. It's not only the people that require the services that aren't being able to get the services, but then the people that care for them aren't able to go to work. They aren't able to be as productive because they have to stay at home and care for their loved one. Um, And when that happens, that affects the overall economy as well because they are not as productive. So, and when those people aren't working, then they're not able to provide the economic activity in their communities and shop and go to the store in the local communities because they're no longer working. So there's an effect. It's a really a, it goes around in a in a circle here about how this affects them more than just the people who directly are not getting services. Yeah. Is there anything we the general public can do? Part of it is just being able to talk with their legislators and explaining how important it is that we take care of this human service sector. Um, There's 180,000 jobs um, in Massachusetts that are connected with human services. It's huge. Virtually every community has human services or human services workers and how important they are and the people that they care for. So I think it's important to talk to their local reps to make sure that this becomes prioritized as an, an issue that affects their community and affects us as a state as well. I would just add to that, that also pushing for rational immigration reform is really important. For the at least the past 30 years, the human service workforce challenge has been partially met by great workers coming to us from other countries. And as Michael alluded to, we have a... Uh, 
demographic problem here in Massachusetts where we're getting gray fast and there isn't a younger population replacing all of the folks that are retiring every day. And so we need immigration to supplement the ranks of workers. And frankly, some of the best workers we've ever had at Road to Responsibility have come to us from other countries. And you can't have them now because of freezes on visas? Yep, freezes on visas that started uh, in the Trump administration and now in the current administration is just not taking any action to rectify the problem. Hmm. I've got three employees that are have been stuck in the Philippines for two and three years and haven't been able to get back even though they have valid visas. They can't get back in the country because of uh, State Department rules that were instituted in the previous administration. And there aren't enough Americans filling the gap. Exactly. Let's take a break here. We got some great texts and comments about how much people missed us while we were on vacation. Thank you. To get the latest news from us and a once a week note letting you know when new episodes drop, sign up for our emails at thehinghamcast.com. And bonus, only people who are signed up for our emails can win our raffle prizes, gift certificates, food, wine, movie tickets, Hinghamcast koozies. Hello. Do not miss out. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The Providers Council is backing a state bill called Fair Pay for Comparable Work. So remember that the state sets the rates nonprofits are reimbursed for taking care of people in need. Right now, state employees working in the human services field are often making more than their counterparts doing similar work at nonprofits. So obviously that makes it harder for nonprofits to lure talent if they can make more money with the state. The Fair Pay Bill, which is making its way through the State House, would eliminate that disparity by 2027. Here's Michael. Yeah, and you can understand that just because of the pay disparity that we've mentioned. And one of the things else that the council is doing is pushing a bill called the Fair Pay Bill mm-hmm. so that uh, the folks who are in our sector get a pay that's comparable to what other sectors, whether they work for the state or in healthcare, that the pay that they get is comparable to that so that they have a fair chance and they can make a rational choice about coming to work in human services and taking care of the people that you've talked to and others throughout the state. Yeah. I mean, these critical jobs that are very difficult. If I could take a job in fast food or retail and make the same amount of money without the stress and level of responsibility, I'm more apt to do that. And, and, and you may not need a college education. Many of our, our folks have college educations. And one of the other bills we are pushing is a loan repayment bill to mm. help people who want to come into human services pay off their loans. Because with mm. the salaries they're getting, it's really hard to say, I'm going to come here. I've got a $33,000 student debt graduating out of college. It's hard for them to make that decision. Um, hopefully they do, and some of them still do because they really want to make a difference, and we applaud them and we support them on that. But we should help them out as well because mm. what they're doing is helping all of us in the Commonwealth um, by working in a nonprofit sector. Beth McDade says she can't put a price on Cormac's future and is devastated money is standing in the way. These people work so hard for these kids, and they know what they're doing, and they're good at what they do. And they deserve better. 
Thank you to my podcasting partner, the incredibly talented and thoughtful producer-editor Kristen Keith. Our intern, Hingham's own Cameron Baker. Our website was designed by Donna Mavromatis and her team at Mavro Creative. I'm Allie Dunley. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.